said several times, Lord, there is no one like you. And uh, one of the ways in which there's, there's no one like our God is, is found in, <clears throat> excuse me, in Psalm 107 where it says that he, he alone, changes a wilderness into a pool of water, a dry land into springs of water. There he makes the hungry to dwell so they may establish an inhabited city, sow fields and plant vineyards and gather a fruitful harvest. And Father, while we know those things are true in your creation, you are the God who creates out of nothing. Father, there's, there's no challenge to you whatsoever in the physical creation to turn a, a desert into a, into a river, Father, to, to take dry ground and break it up and bring fresh new life, even an abundant harvest. But much more than that, your word makes it clear that through Jesus, you do the same thing in human hearts. Father, we, we know that apart from you, Father, those of us who've who've encountered Jesus Christ and trusted him, that, that apart from him our lives are, they're, they're, they're dry, they're hard. Father, we have our seasons of joy, our ups and our downs, but there's no enduring spring of new life welling up within us. But in Jesus, Lord, uh, there are abundant streams of living water. There is fresh new life. There is abundant harvest even when, Lord, our lives feel very lean. And Father, my, my prayer this morning, because you know every heart in here, I don't, is that the hearts that need the refreshing of your living water would find it, that they have found it already in worship, Father, in prayer, in the reading of your word, that we're reminded that, uh, that there is no one like you. And, and one of the, the other ways in which there's none like you is that you, as almighty God, are, are the God who loves us so very much. Father, I thank you that you can meet with each heart here today and, and however determined or distracted we may be, Father, not through the voice of a preacher or the singing of nice songs, but through the power of your Holy Spirit, you can break up that dry ground. You can shatter those shells and walls we've built around our hearts. You can forgive those awful things that we carried in with us, Father, that make us feel so ashamed. And you can come and say, as, as we'll celebrate... Lord, Jesus did next Sunday when he found Mary in the garden. He said, now rise and go from here and tell my brothers that I live. Father, I pray that, that the truth that we have a Savior who lives would, would grip our hearts today. And Father, I pray that now as we go to your word that you would be the one who speaks to us. Father, that it wouldn't be me, that it wouldn't be any preacher, but, but yet through the, the preaching of your word, something you've ordained, Father, that you would speak to every single heart present here this morning, including mine. Father, we pray by the power of your Spirit, you come and guide us in truth, because, because you are, Jesus is the truth. Father, we ask that by the power and the presence and the ministry of your Spirit, you'd guard us from error and misunderstanding. Father, we get lied to all week long. We deceive ourselves, and, and Father, we don't want that to continue even for another moment. Father, I ask that by the power of your Spirit, you deliver us from whatever's in the way. Father, whether it's a proud heart or a broken heart, that you would deal with it all. And for the next few minutes, allow us to see the Lord Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word. May we see him only this morning as we go to your word. And Father, when we leave in a little while, my hope, my prayer is that we leave one and all rejoicing, not because we came to church, Father, not because we feel better now that we did, but because we got to sit at the feet of, of Jesus and hear from him. Father, speak now as only you can to each and every one of us. 
We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, once again, good morning. Well, for the one of you, good morning. Thank you. Very good. Very good. It is so, let me tell you how good it is to be back here today. I, um, as many of you know, I, uh, I had intended to be gone two weeks, and I was gone three, and I can tell you I would rather have been anywhere other than where I was last Sunday, sprawled out on my couch, and, and we, I, I tried so hard to get here last Sunday because I felt so guilty and so bad for Greg. In fact, there was no cooler individual in the first service this morning than Greg because Greg is the one who got the call from my wife last Saturday night at 9 o'clock saying he ain't going to be there tomorrow. And, and Greg has informed me, we met this week, those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, I was supposed to be here last Sunday, uh, but, uh, but got very, very sick on Saturday night. And so Greg uh, was, was called in in my place. Well, when we meet, Greg and I meet every Tuesday, and, and one of the first things he made very clear in our weekly pastor to pastor meeting is that if, if his phone ever rings again on Saturday night and my wife's name is on the caller ID, he said, just plan on I'm not answering the phone. So you just be warned, if, if your phone rings on a Saturday night and my wife's name is on the caller ID, just be careful. You never know what might be coming. But Greg stepped in and God used him, I know that he did, uh, to bring a message that clearly he wanted uh, other than this one uh, to be heard last Sunday. And so that is, is so exciting to me that God works uh, even when it looks like our plans are, are falling apart around us. So um, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Acts 17. Uh, This morning is Palm Sunday. I realize that. We have not forgotten or overlooked that. But we are, in terms of this time in God's Word, going to be in Acts 17, continuing our our journey following Paul on his second missionary journey. Uh, But for those of you who are curious about Palm Sunday, let me just, as you're finding your way there, and and this week, obviously, Palm Sunday is the beginning of Holy Week. Uh, We are going to begin observing Holy Week tonight, and that's been announced, it's been mentioned, uh, it's been sent out on email. But I really, really want to to reinforce it. If, if you look in your bulletin as you're doing whatever else you're doing there with your Bible, there's a, a little purple sheet like this, and um, it lists all the, the, the Easter and, and Good Friday activities we have coming up on one side, and then on the other is a list of Easter week readings. And, and I would encourage you, I don't know where you might be or if you're even engaged in sort of a daily time of reading the scriptures, um, but what we've spelled out for you there are what the Bible tells us Jesus did on each and every day of this week we're now entering into. Palm Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, right on through the cross and, and Resurrection Sunday. And if you just want to follow Jesus that way through this final week of his earthly life, I would encourage you to do that. But I'd also encourage you for another reason, because we're going to come back here almost every night this week, starting tonight, and use these events as a catalyst for prayer. We're not going to look at all the passages, but today's Palm Sunday. So tonight, we're having, as, you, as you've seen, we've, we're just calling them Holy Passion. We're praying together through Jesus' final week. We're going to use a, a portion of what the Bible tells us Jesus did on Palm Sunday. Come tonight at 6.30. We're going to worship for a little while, and then we're just going to go to prayer and use this as an opportunity to worship and to pray together. There is no other agenda. We're not coming to get big ideas and principles for living. We're simply coming to worship Jesus. And then we're going to come back tomorrow night and Tuesday night. We're going to skip Wednesday because there's so many other things happening here on Wednesday uh, that we don't want to interrupt. But then again on Thursday, uh, we're going to have these four nights of prayer and then our our usual Good Friday service on Friday. And what I'd say is, is come to one if you can. I understand you can't come to all, but don't think that if you can't make it to all the prayer meetings, you shouldn't come to any of them. I'd say come, to when, come when you can, come if you can, come tonight. You might find you like it and want to come back to the other ones. 
Uh, but the desire really is to gather together with no other agenda than to simply pray and worship Jesus for what he has done for us. So uh, I just I can't encourage you enough to, to come and to join us tonight at 630. We'll be in the basement, and, and I believe that we will be glad uh, that we have done that together. With that, we are in Acts 17 this morning. And we are following the Apostle Paul. And, and what I want to do is, is we're going to read the passage sort of in small doses. I don't want to read it all at once because while it's not an extremely long passage we're looking at in God's Word this morning, it's a very involved one. There's a lot of detail. There's a lot of things going on. So I want to go through it slowly. And so to sort of set all that up, let me begin by saying that for those of us who've read the New Testament or studied it before, and we've looked at and we've heard about the life of the Apostle Paul, I have a hunch, and that hunch is this. That most of us, when we think of, of the Apostle Paul, we probably in our mind imagine a supremely confident servant of Jesus Christ. The kind of guy who always knew where he was going. The kind of guy who always knew what he was doing, what his life, what his day was all about. Who always had the right thing to say given the moment or the opportunity or whatever season he was in. We think of someone, a servant of Jesus, who was confident. But I say that because I can't help but wonder if where we pick this story up this morning, here in the middle of Acts 17, if the Apostle Paul found himself in a very different sort of state and, uh, of mind and heart altogether. Because in the previous chapter, and I know that was a long time ago, but if you can remember with me back to Acts chapter 16, remember that Paul there began what's now known as his second great missionary journey. And, and at the beginning, or prior to the beginning of that journey, God assembled for him a dynamic ministry team. It was him, and, and it was Silas, and it was Timothy, and, and it was Luke, and, and all four men were equally passionate about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever God wanted them to take it. So Paul had a team. Furthermore, we're told that, that while he was sort of hanging out in Asia Minor, getting this team put together, that one night he went to sleep, but God gave him a vision. And in, in the night, he gave him a vision of a man from Macedonia. Now, he was in Asia Minor. Macedonia was southeastern Europe across the sea. And in the vision, which he understood to be clearly from the Lord, said, come over here with the gospel. This is your next move. And so the next morning, Paul got up, got the team together. We have the word of the Lord. We're going. We're headed to Macedonia to take the gospel there. And while in Macedonia, we've seen they face the same sort of challenges and opportunities they'd, they'd encountered everywhere else they'd taken the gospel before, at least they knew in that moment they were where God wanted them. They were where God wanted them to be, and they were doing what the Lord had called them to do. But where we find Paul this morning, it's very, very different, because Paul's not in Macedonia anymore. Instead, what we're, we're going to see is Paul is 200 miles south of Macedonia in the city of Athens in, in Greece. And the reason he's there is he was driven out once again of Macedonia by the threat of persecution. The thought was, Paul, if you hang around here any longer, you may not live to see another day. So Paul had to flee. What's worse, not only did he have to flee 200 miles south to Athens, he had to flee there alone. As for some unknown, unstated reason, Silas and Timothy were able to stay behind. And they didn't have to, to flee like Paul did. And, and so all of that has simply brought me to the point of wondering if, given those facts, I can't help but wonder whether in his heart Paul was confused about what God was doing. If Paul was asking the same question you have asked in your life dozens of times before, God, why? What are you doing? Why has this happened? 
This is not where I thought I would be. This is not what I thought you called me to do. This isn't. This, uh, if he was utterly perplexed about the way this missionary journey that seemed so clear at the beginning was now unfolding in such unexpected ways. But whatever the case, whether he truly felt that way or not, it wasn't long until Paul discovered God did have him in Athens for a reason. That God had sent him to this city for a purpose. There was a mission there for him to carry out, which culminated, and this is really what we'll zero in on this morning, with a, with a rare and an incredible opportunity to preach before the Greek Areopagus in the city of, of Athens. Now, the Areopagus was, was a place, but it was also a council. The Areopagus was a council of men. They were sort of the city fathers of, of Athens. They controlled and they oversaw the city's politics and, and its commerce and, and its religion and its social life and customs. Basically, this is the group that was large and in charge over the city of Athens. Uh, they met, uh, they were called the Areopagus. They met in a place called the Areopagus that was situated at a location called Mars Hill. So you're going to hear me use Mars Hill and the Areopagus sort of interchangeably this morning. But the Areopagus was a council that met on top of Mars Hill, and as I said, the culmination of Paul's ministry in Athens was he got to speak there. And as we walk through the story this morning, there's three things about it that I want you to see, three really important things that I think we need to take hold of, again, to grapple with what was it God was doing and, and why. And the first of those three things, just to get right into the story now, is this, is we need to understand or we need to recognize that when Paul found himself in Athens and, 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 the, and, and the place God now had him quite unexpectedly, that he was dropped down quite literally into a scene of mass confusion. That Paul found himself in the city of Athens on the scene of great, specifically spiritual confusion. Grab your Bible, look at verse 16. I'm going to read down through verse 21. Here's what God's word says. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them, the rest of his team, at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. And so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Now some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? While others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because... He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, the town council, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you're bringing some strange things to our ears and we want to know what they mean. Now, Luke adds sort of as an aside, all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Now, it's probably not a newsflash to any of you when I say or I point out the fact that we are living in a time and in a place where there is a strong undercurrent, not even an undercurrent, a strong sentiment in our society. Not everybody believes this, but a lot of people do, that, that religious expression has no place in the public square. That you can believe whatever you want to believe, and you can believe it as sincerely as you want to believe it, but keep it to yourself. Practice it at home. Religious expression, so far as it goes, is fine, but that is a private matter. Now, I don't know where you fall on that spectrum, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing or how you respond to it, and frankly, that doesn't matter. I simply bring it up to point out the contrasting truth that the Athens in which Paul found himself here was at the extreme opposite end of the spectrum. 
in that religion, spiritual uh, practice, belief, observance, and all the rest was not a private matter at all. Instead, it was very, very public. Furthermore, you get the impression as you look at these verses that that every religious belief, however conventional or bizarre it may have been, was essentially granted equal time. You believe your thing, I'll believe my thing, and we'll all just kind of get along and be free to talk about it and interact over it and all the rest. Different sort of scene. And you don't have to work hard to see that. Just look at the verses again we just read together. Verse 16, what does it say? It says, Paul found in Athens that the city was, it says at the end of verse 16, full of idols. And understand, that is not an exaggeration. As in the Athens of that day, a familiar axiom, a a local proverb was, it's easier to find a god than a man in Athens. Now, why was that? (laughs) Because there were 10,000 people living in Athens. That's all. But there were 30,000 idols. They were on every street corner, in every shop window, on every shelf. They were everywhere idolatry, altars, big gods, small gods, all over town. They outnumbered the people three to one. And, and not only that, verse 17 says that Paul, he, he sees this, so he starts talking. says he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles on Sabbath, that'd be Saturday, and in the marketplace called the Agora, all the other days of the week with whoever was, was present. You get the sense that Paul's going around, he's preaching the gospel all the time, he's talking to people about religious faith, and nobody finds that out of the ordinary. It's just what people did all week long, and, and it seems like he was doing it fairly uninhibited. In fact, so much so that in verse 18 it said that while the local philosophers didn't exactly understand what he was saying, they didn't grasp his message, they seemed bothered by the fact that he was talking religion. In fact, quite to the contrary, it says in verses 19 and 20, what they do? Let's take you to the council. Let's take you to the men who are running the show, and let's give this thing a complete hearing. Let's stop getting it in bits and pieces. Spell it out. What is this new teaching you are bringing to us? And nobody seems to raise an objection. Let's talk religion. Let's talk faith. And while Luke's expression in verse 21 may demonstrate some exaggeration or hyperbole when he says that that everyone in Athens used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new, I think the point is simply this, that, that religion in that day was the equivalent of sports in our day. Everybody talks about it everywhere they go all the time. It's just the way life works. Let's talk religion. But here's the thing. While religious conversation was the stuff of everyday life in Athens... The glimpse of it we're given here shows that it was a scene of confusion, and not some confusion, of great confusion, because you get the impression that all the talk and interaction and conversation and debate and activity wasn't leading anyone to anything firm in terms of a conclusion. There wasn't agreement. It's kind of, you do your thing, and I'll believe mine, and and we'll just keep talking about it as, as long as we can. And if there's a lesson for us to take in that, I think it's found in Paul's immediate response to it in verse 16, looking at your Bible. It says, the apostle Paul found himself provoked when he saw what was happening in Athens, at this city full of idols. That's an interesting word. Originally in Greek, it was a medical term. It was the term a doctor used to describe a seizure, something sudden and dramatic and and observable to to everyone around. But, But over time, it It came to mean more of a a personal disposition, an attitude of indignation, a settled spirit of sort of hot anger. It meant to burn with anger, something that's gripped your soul. And that's exactly what's intended here. It says, the way Luke uses the word, he says, Paul looked around, he saw this idolatry, and it lit something in him. 
And it made him angry in, in a righteous and, and in a holy sort of way. And as believers, we should understand why and that he was not wrong or sinful to feel that way as he saw what was happening. Because, I, I, in fact, I'll take it a step further. I'll suggest we should share it. That we should feel the same way Paul did here. Why? Well, I think his indignation was twofold. First, I think he was angry. I think he was provoked by how this sort of every religion deserves a fair shake mentality that defined Athens uh, would diminish the glory of the one true God, the God he knew to be true, the true and living God. That, that I think that would be upsetting to him and, and, and frustrating to Paul to say, listen, there is a God who needs to be worshipped and, and you're treating my God, the one true God, as no better or worse than that idol on the street corner. That, that made him angry. Secondly, I think Paul was equally impassioned, equally provoked over the fact that he knew where, well, while no one else in Athens seemed to know where it was all leading, he did. He knew that all the people following all these idols and gods and altars and everything else were headed where? To hell. Paul said, I, I can't abide that. I, I can't let that pass, not only unnoticed, but, but unanswered. Paul realized that these people, they have all the religion a person could ever want or need, but what they lack is a relationship with the God who saves lost sinners. And here's the question. Do you feel the same way? Do I feel the same way about the spiritual darkness all around us while on the outside is very, very different? The outcome is very, very much the same? Does it bother you that the person in the next cubicle who doesn't know Jesus is destined for hell without him? the person on the other side of the classroom, the next-door neighbor? Not, do you go around feeling guilty, but are you provoked? You say, wait, th this cannot stand. I, I can't let this slide without responding to it. I'm suggesting we should be, that I should be a whole lot more than I am. And if so, then I think it should compel us to respond. You say, all right, well, what's, what's the response? Well, that's what Paul does next, verses 22 through 31. Paul recognizes, he assesses the situation. He does it very quickly. This is a scene of utter religious chaos and confusion. So what Paul did is what he did everywhere else he went. He brought them, secondly, a message of clarity. Let's bring some clarity into the confusion. Now grab your Bible. I want to start reading in verse 22. And this is where I really kind of want to take this in small chunks and, and, and sort of examine the different elements of what Paul tries to say here. He starts in verses 22 and, and 23. Actually, Luke introduces or, or brings us back to the scene. He says this, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. He got this opportunity to stand before the town council. And he said, Men of Athens, I observe you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, can I just point out one thing? Paul's about to confront people with the truth. But he is not confrontational in his spirit. He begins with a compliment. I observe you're religious people. I see you've got a heart to know that there's something more to life. He doesn't run them down for being filthy, idol-worshiping pagans. He says, listen, let's find a, a point to begin with, and now let's talk. 
And, and specifically, he seizes on something that would have been very familiar to them. He says, I was wandering around town, and I saw an, an altar to an unknown God. Now, that's interesting, because the sense there is they had all these idols, 30,000 or more scattered around town, and then they had an altar to an unknown God. Why was that there? For anything they might have missed. Well, maybe there's some gods out there somewhere, and we want to make sure they're all equally happy with us, and if this one's wrong, then that one's right. So we've got this altar, and Paul says, listen, I'm going to seize on something you know, something that is to you utterly confusing, and I'm going to bring clarity. You worship an unknown God. I am here to declare him to you. And in doing so, Paul says four things about him. Here's sort of the four points of his message, if you will beginning in verses 24 and 25. Here's what I proclaim to you, Paul said. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Now, before we go any further, Paul's already made a point. He's already confronted them with something that would have sort of rocked their spiritual religious world. And it's this, there's a God who's in charge. You've got 30,000 idols scattered around town. I am here to tell you, there is one true God, and he is in charge. He is Lord. And in doing that, Paul introduces a theme that runs through the rest of his message. The theme of God is the great creator. And you see that come up again and again. God is creator. Now, why does Paul do that? Not because the members of the Areopagus were a bunch of evolutionists. They may have been. I don't know. But he confronts them with the truth of God as creator because they were idolaters. And and the fundamental problem of idolatry is it reverses God's design. God's design is I, God, am the creator. You are the creation. You worship me. But with idolatry, that gets turned on its head. I become the creator. I create the God. And how convenient is it that I can create him and then I can decide what he says and doesn't say and where he goes and doesn't go and what he does and where he convicts me and where he doesn't. And suddenly I have, what does idolatry do? It puts me in the place of the creator. And God, whatever you want to define him or her as, as the created thing. And that is obviously not God's intended order. And you know, you don't need a carved image of wood or stone to be an idolater, to worship a God of your own making and creation. People do it every day. Well, the God I worship, he's a God of love. Mine too. But that's not all he is. If all God is, and I understand where that sentiment comes from. We want a God who is, who is warm and inviting and all this. But listen, if all the God you worship is, is a God of love and nothing else, he is roughly the equivalent of my two-year-old's pillow pet. He's warm and fuzzy, keeps me cozy at night, cheers me up when I'm sad. But he has nothing to say to the harsh realities of life in a broken world. If he's loving, but he's not just and righteous and holy and all-powerful and all-knowing and all the rest, well, then what does he have to say to my hurting marriage? What can he do about the fact that someone I love is no longer here? What does he have to, how does he handle the fact that, that my bank account is so far below zero I don't ever see getting back up again? Well, it'll keep you warm at night, maybe but he can't fix it. And Paul's saying, no, there is a, a God, and he is the Lord. And he's love, but he's so much more than that. So Paul starts 
with this biblical premise. There is a God, and he is in charge. And then he threw this one out in the second point of his message, which would have taken that sort of revolutionary thought and amped it up a step further when he says in verses 25 and 26, not only is there a God who is in charge, he is actively involved in our world. He's actively involved in our world. Verse 25. This God I proclaim to you, he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since, because he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man, he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. In other words, gang, here's the deal. God didn't simply wind up the universe and then go catch a movie. All right? He wound up the universe. He spun everything into place. And now, because he's the creator and he cares about it so much, he is involved in every detail of our lives, of our universe, of the world we live in. There is not one solitary detail that escapes his notice or his activity. In these two verses alone, Paul alludes to to a whole host of, of ways in which that's true. Look again at 25 and 26. He gives, he himself, well, he's already talked about prior to this, God is creator. Perhaps Paul could have looked as he stood in the Areopagus on top of Mars Hill around at the great city of Athens and said, look at the rivers, the mountains, the streams, the trees. There's a creator, all right? That, that sort of thing. But, but he goes further with that as well. And he says he's the one who gives us life. Isn't that what the Bible says? He breathed life into each one of us. He's the one who gives us life. He's, he's, he's interested and involved in it, and, he, and he's the one who's given us all our stuff, all things. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their times and the boundaries of their habitation. In other words, you're going to live this long and no longer. You're going to advance this far and no farther. He doesn't just know these things. It says he determines these things. He is a sovereign God. He's a powerful, holy God. So there, number one, there's a God and he's in charge. Number two, he's actively passionately involved in our world. Now, this would have been the real game changer. If the first two things didn't shake him up, this one would have. Third, he wants to be known. This God, I proclaim to you, Paul said, he wants to be known. Because he answers the question in verses 27 and 28, why is God involved in all this stuff? Why is he involved and and interested in in our lives and and our stuff and where we live and where we come from and who we belong to and where we're headed? Why? Why? Well, he's determined all these things, Paul says in verse 27, that they, that we, would seek him. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. Even some of your own poets have said, we are his children. Now there are, let me just say, there are so many rabbit trails in these two verses I want to go down. There is so much happening here and so many questions these two verses raise. But the fundamental message is this, that despite all the objections that have ever been raised throughout all of human history about how hard God is to find, oh, I can't see him and I can't find him. It's like playing, you know, cosmic hide and seek. And and if God really wanted to be known, he'd show himself to us and he'd do this and that. And he's, he's made it so difficult. No, he hasn't. That's what Paul's saying here. Despite all the objections, the God who's in charge and involved in our world has done more than enough to show himself to us. Again, he's done it in creation. Look around. It makes sense. 
that there is a God who created all things. Again, he's done it in the, the gift of life, which, by the way, the gift of life is a gift that no other philosophy or religion can fully account for the way that Christianity does. Now, you have to accept it by faith. God breathed life into us, but there's no other sufficient explanation. He's done it in the gift of life, the life of our, uh, ourselves and, and others. He's done so. Now, Paul didn't do this on Mars Hill because it didn't suit the moment. But if Paul were here this morning, he goes, and oh, by the way, he's done it in this thing you're holding in your hands, right? You've got it either in written or digital form in your lap right now, his word. And in it, he has not, he, I will acknowledge, he has not answered every question you have in this book, but he's answered everything you need to know, to know him, to be saved, to believe in him. He has revealed himself in his word. It's all here if we're willing to go find it. But then ultimately, and and this is where Paul was going with his message. This is where, what, what a great season to be in, where we're going with it this week. Ultimately, God has revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. He says, if you want to know who I am, look to him. He says it in Hebrews 1. If you don't want to turn there, at least write it down. Hebrews 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in different ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. He made purifications of sin, and he sat down at his Father's right hand. He says, if you want to know who God is, look to Jesus. If you want to understand what God desires of you, look to Jesus. He has made himself known because he wants to be known. He's in charge. He's involved. He wants to be known. But then here's the kicker. And and here's where even if they could somehow have grasped the first three points, they would have had the same problem people still have with this message today. There is a God. He's large and in charge. He's actively involved in our world. He wants us to know him and have a relationship with him. But here was Paul's fourth and final point. He must be approached on his terms. He must be approached on his terms. Verses 29 through 31. Being then the children of God, and Paul there is speaking in in just the creation. We've been created by him. There's a father-like relationship as a result. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. That's not thinking big enough, people. An image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, Jesus. Say, how do I know it's Jesus? Because he furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Here's what Paul was saying. He was saying, guys, listen up. Sincerity is not enough. You've got all these gods and all these idols and all these notions about who God is and what he's like and what he really wants and everything else. And you're very sincere. But sincerity takes you nowhere if you've put it in the wrong place. We all have had this experience in life, not necessarily in something as consequential as eternal life and eternal things, but there are plenty of times in your life and mine where I have been sincere and been sincerely wrong. (laughs) I really believed it. I believed it with all my heart. And then somebody came along and said, no, 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 this is the answer. That's what Paul's saying. He's like, you guys are sincere. I observe you're religious in every respect. You're just wrong. Now that's narrow, is it not? You with me on this one? I know. It may be narrow, 
But you know what else it is? It's absolutely clear. It's absolutely clear. And that's another, if you want to call it advantage, the gospel has over every other faith and philosophy and persuasion. It is clear. It is not evolving. It is not mysterious. It is not, well, maybe hope to kind, I really wish. It's clear. So agree or disagree. Accept it or reject it. Run to Jesus or run from him. At least you know what you're running to or from. There's no mistake. Because it's clear, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead. Believe it and be saved. It's clear. People don't like the narrowness. And then they miss the clarity. Because like a double-edged sword, which is what the Bible itself says it is, the message Paul gave there on Mars Hill cut through the religious chaos with absolute clarity, with absolute precision. He said, verse 30, it's about repentance. And verse 31, trusting the one God appointed who he raised from the dead to give us eternal life. And that inevitably led as the gospel, as a clear gospel presentation always does, to third and finally, we'll finish with this, a moment of confrontation. It was a scene of chaos into which Paul brought a message of clarity, the message of clarity, and it prompted, as it always does, a moment of confrontation. Look at the last three verses. Verse 32. It says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they began to sneer. But others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. And some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So like everywhere else Paul had been, his mission to Mars Hill had mixed results. There was opposition, there was curiosity, and there were a handful of decisions to to trust and to follow Jesus Christ. And one common denominator, no one left neutral. Some left undecided, but they didn't leave neutral. They left scoffing or we'll hear you again because as we've said here many, many times before in this church, in this church family, it is impossible to truly encounter Jesus and remain unchanged. You meet him, you've got something to think about. And it's true even for believers. Every time we encounter him again, again in spirit and truth, we will not be the same. And each person there had a decision to make. Now, we don't know anything else about Paul's mission and his ministry in Athens. The Bible simply, flatly doesn't tell us. The next chapter, it begins by saying, after these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. End of story. So we don't know. Did did they hear him again? They said, we'll hear you again concerning this. Did they, or were they just blowing smoke? Did other people trust Christ? Was the church started? Did the gospel spread? Did he get to hang around? We don't know any of that. But you know what we can still say? Paul's mission was accomplished in Athens because he did what God told him to do, when he told him to do it, where he told him to do it. Paul was obedient to the leading of God's spirit. He used the opportunity God gave him. And I think one of the questions that raises, certainly for me, and and I will ask the question of you, is whether or not as believers we're willing to do the same. Let me ask you again, are you provoked by the spiritual darkness all around us? Are you too busy with March Madness and Easter preparation and life as we, listen, are we provoked? Does it bother us that that there's a cost to not trusting or responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ? I, I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I say that to myself to wake me up, to wake you up, to 
prompt us to say the stakes really are that high? And if so, are we willing to say what we're told all the time not to say, that the gospel is utterly clear? That it's not a mystery. That it's not about question after question after question. And it's all about the questions and it's all about the journey. No, it isn't. It's about believing or rejecting Jesus Christ. That is the question. Resolve that and then we'll talk about the other stuff. But are we willing to say that and stop messing around and, and, and well, you know, it's, uh, people need, and they need that and they need whatever and... No. There's a problem and there's an answer. There's a solution. And then, are we willing to let, and this is a challenging one too, are we willing to let the success, for lack of a better word, fruit, that's probably a more spiritual term, of our efforts be determined by God who sees all things rather than our popularity among the masses. Do people think we're cool? Are they with us? Do they affirm us? No, they won't. You've noticed that, right? Well, let's stop looking for the ple- to please men and let's make sure that we are seeking to please God. We need to know that because I- I'm convinced that knowing those things in his mind and heart already is what enabled Paul, standing alone, to confront those assembled on Mars Hill with the truth, to confront without being confrontational, to speak the truth in love, calling them to Jesus. And remember, and we'll close with this, Paul never planned to go there. Paul was in a place he'd never planned to go. He was speaking to people he never even probably imagined or envisioned he would speak to, and he was alone. He was not with the crowd that he was accustomed to having with him. In short, my point is this. It was kind of like a mission to Mars because it was alien in every way. It wasn't where he thought he was supposed to be, and yet it's where God had him, and it's where God put him. And the big idea of the message is this, and it's it's an easy one to say, but it's a tough one to live, which is that God intends to use us right where he has us. I know you're not where you want to be, I know life isn't working out right now the way you wanted it or thought it would. I know you're waiting for the next door to open or one of them to close or the answer to come in or whatever, and if you're not, you will be and you have been before. But God intends to use us right where he has us. Paul thought he should be in Macedonia. He thought he should be with his, with his comrades, and God said, no, I need you here, even if it's just for a season, and I will use you if you will let me. Father, I pray that you would drive that message more deeply into my heart. Father, let us be provoked in a a godly way by the darkness around us, but provoked in such a way that we don't get angry and rant and rave and, and everything that you wouldn't want us to do, but rather to to really take this gospel, this good news, and it is good. It is so good, this good news you have given to us about a God who's in charge but wants a relationship with us and offers it freely in his son, Jesus Christ. Father, and and, and speak it and share it and live it and celebrate it because it is, in fact, the best news of all. Father, you know where you have each one of us today and, and we trust that you have each one of us where we are for a reason, whether we're thrilled about it or... or or, or resisting and digging in our heels. Father, help us to see that you can use us right where you have us, that you, you will use us 
right where you have us. You, you may not show us the result or the outcome, but you'll be faithful. Father, help us to trust you today that you, the sovereign God, are our loving Father and Jesus is our closest friend. And Father, may we go forward in confidence and faith and joy because of it today in Jesus' name. Amen.